of the Rings meets Terminator. This is that's a good message, <laughs> okay? And it's good because of what I'm pulling out of the scripture, not because I am amazing. Um, but, but just to give you a little background, before we jump in, it's, it's nice if we get to know each other a little bit. I, I think that. I, it brings people's walls down. And like, who is this standing in front of our church? So let me, let me just go there for a sec. Is that okay? So I, I realize that my last name is challenging to pronounce. It's Marquis. Uh, my first name is difficult to spell, and so I have a first name no one can spell and a last name no one can say, and so I, I will probably respond to various incarnations, or hey, you is fine. Um, my mother was very firm with me that, however, my name is Catherine. It's not a shortened version of Catherine. It's not Kathy. It's not Katie. It's not Cat. It's not Kath. It's nothing else you can come up with or anything that ends up written on my Starbucks cup, which is almost never my name. One time I said, it's Catherine with a K and a Y to the Starbucks lady, and I got the letters K and Y on my Starbucks cup. (laughs) This is not my natural hair color. Thanks for that shock and disappointment. If you were here uh, for the workshop on Saturday, you've heard all my jokes already, so you're prepared to laugh, to be my laugh track, because I'm hysterical. I'm not really that funny, actually. Um... I'm well over 40. Shock and disappointment again. No, I am. Thanks for politely disbelieving me. I'm the mother of two teenage sons. One of them is here. But he will hate me if I ask him to stand up, so I'm not going to. He's, he, no, no. He's my introvert. He can wave. You just wave. That's my... Come on. It's my Aaron. I know you're, you're live streaming. I'm a walker. Is that okay if I walk? Or am I going to hurt you if I... You can keep track. Okay, I'm going to wander. I'm going to like... Mm-hmm. That's okay. All right. Um, coffee is important to me. <laughs> really, really important. Like next to Jesus, important to me. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus and coffee and there right? I can, I can remember being, you guys are familiar, of course, with Catch the Fire in Toronto. I can remember being there for a conference. It was probably the 20th anniversary celebration because there were thousands of people there. And they have recently got this wonderful cafe now, and they make beautiful coffee. Like, they've got expensive espresso machines. Come on. That's like walking as Enoch walked. Please. And, and I can remember standing in line waiting for this cup of glory. And the worship was beginning in the sanctuary kind of next door. And somebody behind me in the line was like, oh, no, the worship is starting. What will we do? What do you mean, what will we do? Worship and coffee, they're like practically the same. I'm getting my coffee and I'm going into worship. Um, I pastor the worship teams of Forest City Destiny Church in London, the other London, not the one you just thought of, the one in Canada, your friendly neighbors to the north. And we are a church of about 130 people that just turned eight, I think, this month, last month in May. And of that 130 people, about 30 people are involved in worship in some way. So I'm like the cat herder of the worship people. I'm, it's a little like teaching kindergarten some days. And they can hear me say that and they know that that's true. They're wonderful people. Um, 
Ivan and Isabel Alam are our senior pastors, and if you know who they are, they actually travel the world and they minister in the prophetic, and it's so not flaky and so not elitist and so very, very accessible and very simple like the kingdom of God is. And, and you won't know who they are if you haven't been in their meetings because they're very under the radar and they run from media attention, and what they carry is so pure. And the reason that I'm with them is because I was in a meeting they did in some other city like 15 years ago, and it was like they melted away and Jesus stood in front of me telling me everything I ever did and said. It is that pure. And so they're incredible people to serve with. And, and so now I'm on staff with them at their church plant. They are the senior leadership. I'm the worship pastor. And, and it's a, they're very quirky in their humanity because I'm not. I'm, I'm completely normal. Um, they're very quirky in their humanity, but they're great people to be with. And, of course, no one in this church is quirky in their humanity. Um, I lead worship and travel and teach um, on worship. Whoa, I teach on worship. Stay. Um, And that is my absolute passion. There is nothing I love more than teaching the corporate bride about worship. And I love to equip musicians. I love to work with musicians. But um, I think we make a mistake when we separate worship out for those who play instruments or we separate it out for those who even appreciate music because it's actually the whole corporate worshiping body that that we actually need a revelation a fresh revelation about worship because it's meant to be a corporate approach it's it's meant to be a thing that we do together and if we only equip musicians we're never going to step into what i believe god intended for corporate worship And so that's just a little bit about me so that you have a window into this person standing in front of you. Um, And what I'm going to talk about this morning is is not directly worship, but it's something that absolutely is involved in worship. And it's something that, sadly, there's there's coming a a bit of a, a lack of this in the church at large that I have seen. And that is the topic of the reverence of the presence of God. The reverence of his presence. And, and what I'm going to bring this morning is a little scripture heavy, okay? And that doesn't mean it's going to be boring, I promise you. Put your seatbelt on because the movie is about to begin. And I didn't write the movie. God actually wrote the movie. Um, this, we're going to just, hello, stay up here. Okay, I'm, I'm okay. It's all right. It's all, I'll just keep pulling it up. We're good. Thank you. I'll just keep making adjustments. I'm just going to read a few scriptures. You can just listen. Some of them, if you've brought your Bibles, I'll direct you um, to look in your Bible. But right now, I'm just going to read. So come with me on this journey. You shall keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19.30. Psalm 2, 11 and 12. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 89, 6 to 8. For who is in the skies? Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord. Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. 
Revelation 14, 7, and he, the angel, said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. Psalm 19, 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Psalm 5.7, but as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. And at your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. Hebrews 12.28 and 29, therefore... Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is an all-consuming fire. Selah on that, and I'm going to make a technical adjustment. Hallelujah. You cannot talk about worship and not talk about reverence. Scripture is filled with connections between worship and reverence. Hebrews that we just heard says to offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe because our God is an all-consuming fire. That should tell us that worship that is acceptable includes reverence and awe. Reverence is necessary for our worship. Reverence is a recognition and a byproduct of who God is. Reverence is the foundation or the beginning of wisdom. It's like the building blocks of wisdom. Scripture says to get wisdom and get understanding, and its foundation, its very building blocks, the thing that it's made of is reverence. Reverence is the key to holiness. If you ever wondered how to be holy because he's holy, reverence is what will get you there. Reverence is actually key to releasing blessing in our lives. And I don't know anyone who doesn't want blessing released in their life. And if you don't want blessing, we have people here that can pray for you. It is very easy to confuse a culture of intimacy with a culture of familiarity. I'm going to say that again. It is easy to confuse a culture of intimacy, which we want, with a culture of familiarity. Intimacy with God will actually produce reverence. Intimacy with him will actually produce holy fear in the right way. But familiarity is a counterfeit of intimacy. Because actually zero relationship at all is required for familiarity. You don't need relationship to act in a way that is familiar, to be familiar with somebody. No relationship is required. Because familiarity is based on the presumption of relationship. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever? I've seen it. I've seen it happen to, to people, speakers, and, and people that are sort of perceived 
you know, and we talked about this yesterday, there, there's a rising sort of celebrity culture within the church. And, and no one person or organization is guilty of this. It's human nature. Israel did it. Give us a king, give us a king. It's in us to want to exalt the humans. And, and we can be tempted into sort of a celebrity culture when we, have, when we sit in the presence of those who have been deemed important people. You know, Scripture tells us that in the eyes of God, men are on a level playing field. That he's put various levels of authority in place, and scripturally, we're responsible to honor authority. But that's not the same as seeing the humans as, oh, something up right up here. Are you with me? Okay, and so I have seen it happen where you, you know the people who these are. And if you don't know who they are, it might be you who come running for the speaker. And they're like, hey, and, and they want to like act like your best friend. Have you seen that? Because... It, there's a presumption of relationship that happens because you, you've spent time in the presence of someone who is, is speaking to you or has been on a stage and you feel like you know them because you've been sitting all weekend in front of what they're... Um, are you tracking with me? But, but there's no relationship there. And the temptation is to become... to feel familiar. We can feel like there's a familiarity between us, but actually we've cultivated no relationship. Familiarity lives out of concept. Intimacy lives out of covenant. Familiarity is drawn from a concept, an idea. But that's not real. There's no legs to it. Whereas reverence comes out of covenant. Intimacy comes out of covenant. Familiarity rides in on a sense of entitlement. I earned this. I deserve this. God owes me this. Of course, no one in this church or in mine. Familiarity gives birth to and feeds on pride. Ouch. Okay? I know this is heavy, but stay with me because we're going into the movie. You all right? I'm going to ask you several times today if you're all right because we're like, where's she going? We're going into the movie. You okay with me? Two people are okay with me? That's enough for me. <laughs> We're going to go into the scripture. If you have your Bibles with you, if you'd like to read along with me, you can turn to 1 Samuel, the beginning of chapter 4. I'm going to read it out loud. So if you are that kind of learner, you can just sit back and listen. If you want to look it up, please do. It's always a good idea to look it up and make sure I'm not making up scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. Okay, there's a war going on. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Is the picture coming to you? We have Israel out there and they're getting trounced. Okay, the Philistines have just slaughtered 4,000 men. That's a lot of people. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark and the covenant of God. 
As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout. Are you seeing this? Okay, they're getting defeated in battle. They're like, why is the Lord defeating us? Because Israel historically understands that the Lord is with her and they win. But they are not winning. And so they're like, let's get the ark. Let's bring the covenant of his presence in so that we can defeat our enemies. And the presence of God comes into the camp and the place goes nuts. There's a big shout. So that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. Okay, this is more epic than the Lord of the Rings. Are you with me? Who's seen, come on, Return of the King is like the most epic battle right? It's happening right here. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent and the slaughter was very great for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What is going on? The story goes on to tell us that Eli is sitting by the road watching for some sign or messenger from the battle. The scriptures, I'm quoting, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. He hears the cry from the city when they get the news. The survivor comes to Eli and tells him, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's also been a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. But the carnage doesn't stop there. His daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, okay? She's now widowed, and worse than that, she has no husband, she has no kinsman redeemer because the brother is dead, and she has no father, okay? In that culture, there are only two answers for a woman in that situation. One is prostitution, and the other is slavery, okay? This is not a small thing. So she hears the news and immediately goes into labor, the midwives come to tell her, it's okay, you've had a son. So the implications there are that eventually a man will be able to cover her again. Scripture says she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. Wow. We already have a huge problem here because already corruption, sin, and irreverence are running rampant among the people that are meant to be separated unto the Lord. Okay, huge 
problem. Neither Eli nor Samuel, so neither the high priest nor the prophet are around. Okay? Eli's at the gate. Samuel's nowhere to be found. But decisions are being made on the battlefield by some council of elders. Okay? And it seems to me they must be self-appointed from among the people because they are the people on the battlefield making the decisions when those decisions should always have been made by the high priest or the prophet. Eli's Israel's judge. Okay? So it's clear by his responses that he loves God, but something's wrong because he's tolerating something. He's refusing to deal with the abominable and the criminal behavior of his sons. If you read deeper into the scriptures, they were among the worst men in Israel at that time. And they totally corrupted the priesthood. They were, they were Levitical priests. I mean, it is the most vile, profane thing going on in, in the camp, okay? And, and they've, the self-appointed elders are asking the right questions, okay? The first 4,000 men get slaughtered, and they are asking the right questions. What's happening here? Because God is usually for us, so why are we getting defeated? But they're missing the answer. Because the answer is actually their own apostasy. That's a big word for utter rebellion. Are you with me? Okay. So they're asking the questions, but, but they're not putting it together that it's because of their decisions, because of what's loose in the camp. The inclusion of Hophni and Phinehas, they, because remember in the story they say, well, we'll get the ark and we'll get Hophni and Phinehas to come along because they're the high priests. Okay. They've included them, but it's not sanctioning the behavior. It's actually making it worse. Because they're already doing something they shouldn't be doing, and now they're bringing along the high priest to like, we'll make this acceptable, we'll just include the high priest, but it's doing the opposite of that. Are are you with me? And, And the people are taking the law into their own hands. Nobody seems to realize that what they've done here on the battlefield is the epitome of profanity. Because they've dragged the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells above the cherubim, the God of angel armies, of awful majesty, of dazzling holiness that shines in the innermost chamber of the tabernacle out by unanointed hands in the common light of day, in the filth of a military camp. And they seem to think that irreverently dragging this token guarantees God's favor regardless of their sin. And before we are too hard on them, let's take a long, hard look at humanity today. Why is God not blessing me? I'm just reading the scripture. They've forgotten that this is the Ark of the Covenant. Anytime it's mentioned in this story, it's not the Ark of God. It is the Ark of the Covenant. And covenant is a two-way exchange. The favor and blessing of God for them came with conditions. And clearly, the conditions were not being met, or we wouldn't have had 4,000 slaughtered corpses on the battlefield day one. I'm just saying. Consider this scripture from Malachi. I'm going to read it, chapter 2, and I'm going to jump around in chapter 2. You can open it if you want, but I'm going to 
read a few verses, and I'll, I'll read them out. So Malachi 2, verses 1 and 2. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. Okay, this is God, this is God talking to the Levitical priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I've cursed them already because you're not taking it to heart. Okay, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Malachi 2.5, my covenant with him, meaning Levi, the father of the Levitical priest, was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. Malachi 2.8, but as for you, you've turned aside from the way, and you've caused many to stumble by the instruction, and you've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So that's what's going on here. They've exchanged a covenant of reverence, of intimate relationship, of worship, of purity, for a heathen token and a good luck charm. They drag the token into battle that contains, man, the irony here, that contains the very transcript of the covenant that condemns what they're doing. Think about that. They haul the ark into battle like a lucky rabbit's foot. And inside that ark are the tablets outlining, I will be your God, you will be my people. You will have no other before me. The wedding vows are in the thing that they're dragging onto the battlefield. In plain view of everyone, where only the high priest is meant to look on it ever. And then only once a year, after very careful purification, that is received by a big shout from the virtually heathen camp of Israel. You know what that sound sounds like, right? Think about a sporting event. And the moment the team comes onto the field, you know that shout? You know the, the hoorah from the military? You know what I'm talking about? There is a sound, okay? That heathen cry on the battlefield as, as that thing that is meant to be treated with the utmost reverence is hauled out there for the benefit of the humans, okay? It should have been received with fear, with tears, with repentance, with reverence and awe. And in fact, it shouldn't have been received at all because it should never have been outside of the holy place in the tabernacle. Are you, are you with me? Are we in the movie? Okay, so before we are too hard on these people, we do exactly the same things. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. How quick are we as well to trust in the externals of our worship? Invoking like the form and function, the way we do. We sing this song, we do this thing, I get up and do my devotions, I declare this scripture over my life. Come on, maybe I'm the only one. Just saying. I don't preach what I haven't lived, by the way. Just so you know, I'm telling on myself. And we treat those things, those ways we relate to God, those ways we worship Him as some kind of lucky rabbit's foot instead of seeing them as the springboard to actual encounter with him, to actual relationship with him. We separate the things we do 
right out of the relationship, and then we end up just doing things, trying to get God to fill in the blank. And we are all guilty of this. I'm not, I'm not beating us, okay? I'm exposing my own humanity in front of you. How am I doing? Still like me? That's okay. Let's keep going. You okay? Back to the movie. Here we go. So now the Philistines have the ark, and they are also treating it like a token. They don't know any better. They're like, this is a thing that used to get us killed, and for some reason it didn't get us killed, and now we're going to take it home. Okay? And so they bring it to Ashdod, and they think they're going to host some kind of supernatural smackdown between Israel's God and their God. No joke. They've set up this sort of cosmic UFC fight. It's exactly like this. They set up the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon, which is the idol of their god. Okay, their gods were represented by physical idols. So we have the idol Dagon, and in their culture, the idol is the actual god. Okay, and they think that the Ark of the Covenant is the Hebrews' actual god. So they've set them up together, and they're like making popcorn, sitting down and saying, let's see what's going to happen. So they set it up, and the next morning, Dagon is lying on the ground, face down in reverence to Jehovah. So they set it up again. Can you see it? The next morning, Dagon is lying again, face down, but he's just a trunk. His head and his hands have been severed from his body. (laughs) So good. And then things get really bad for the Philistines. Are you in the movie? God ravages them and smites the Ashdodites with, the Bible says, tumors, but it is often understood that that word tumor is actually hemorrhoids. Oh, yes. God smites his enemies in their hind quarters. That's a scripture. I'm not making that up. The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. <laughs> right. God literally becomes a pain in their rear end. Every, you can't make this stuff up. This is good. Every city they send it to, okay, they're like, we got to get this out of here. So they send it to another city. And every city they send it to is struck with what the Bible calls deadly confusion. Okay, last time I checked, I did not die from being confused, which is a good thing because I am often confused. But, but God strikes them with a deadly confusion. That tells me that, that their minds were beyond affected. They were, they were dying or killing each other out of confusion. And he sent rats and he sent more tumors. You'll never get that out of your mind, will you? So finally they figure it out. This thing has got to go back. They make, this is, this is brilliant, man. They make a gold rat and they make a gold tumor. Who was the model for that? As a, they make these things out of gold as a guilt offering. And they put that and the ark on, on Scripture tells us, a shiny new cart, okay? And they hitch the cart to nursing milk cows. Okay, anybody know anything about cattle? <laughs> they, they, right? We talked a lot about cows yesterday, the golden kind. Um, nursing milk cows will not be separated from their calves. They won't. Their every instinct, like a nursing mother, is to be near their, their calves. So, and, and they'll cry. Like, it's an awful sound. So they hitch the cart to these nursing milk cows, separate them 
from their calves, and every instinct in that cow's body is screaming to be with their offspring. And they're basically saying, if these cows defy natural law, we know God wants the thing back. Can you picture it? So, and man, the story is amazing. You should read the Bible, seriously. The cows instead pull the ark in the opposite direction of their calves to a border city of Israel, crying all the way. And the distance was about 10 miles. That is a long way for crying cows. When the ark arrives in the border city of Israel, the people receive it, there is rejoicing. Think about the kind of shouting that's happening now, okay? That's not one or two people going, oh, yay, there's the ark. These are thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, because they've seen this thing coming from afar off, okay? And there is a huge shout. The people rejoice. They chop up the cart to make a fire, and they offer the cows as a burnt offering, and they even get the Levites to come and move the ark. Good news. And then we find out that 50,000 people are struck dead because someone gets the idea they should open the ark and look in it. What were they thinking? That's like Raiders of the Lost Ark, man. 50,000 people's faces melted off. I mean, I realize that's movie magic, but do you hear what I'm saying? This is a really big deal. First Samuel chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, it, it tells us that the ark is finally brought up to Kiriath-Jerim, to the house of Abinadab. He's a priest. That means he has to be a Levite. Not all the Levites were priests, but anyone who was a priest was from the tribe of Levi. It ends up in Abinadab's house, and it stays there for 20 years years. 20. His son Eleazar is consecrated for one job. One. He's the keeper and the guard to ensure that proper protocol and treatment of the ark are guarded. That's his only job for 20 years, to protect the protocol so that none of the previous carnage ever gets repeated. And in the wake of terrible failure, Carnage and destruction, safeties are put in place, and a nation slowly begins to heal. Think about 9-11. Think about the impact of 9-11 on this nation. And how small the number of casualties were at 9-11 compared to the 85,000 people in Israel, who died because of this. How are we doing? We okay? All right. Now the movie is going to fast forward 20 years. You with me? It's 20 years later. David has now been anointed king over both Israel and Judah. Repentance and acceptable worship have been restored, and Israel again is winning battles against her enemies. So if we translate that into this nation, you think about a huge disaster, a huge act of terrorism, a huge act that has something that has occurred domestically in our land, in these borders, and it's cost 85,000 lives. And a broken nation 
begins to heal, and over about 20 years, life starts to return to normal, and we're doing things right. 2 Samuel chapter 6, you can turn there if you want. Starting at verse 1. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, about 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Okay. They placed the ark on a shiny new cart. Where have I heard that before? That's what the Philistines did. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. David's heart is actually in a good place, okay? He actually has an honest passion for the presence of God. And when he's doing this, he's actually making a very shrewd political move. Because he's been anointed king over the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and he's uniting them under his rule and making Jerusalem the seat of both governmental and spiritual authority, okay? This is a smart guy. And he does, in that sense, he does what any good politician would do. He hires a band. We have a parade. I'm not joking. They, they've, got, they've got this. They're, they're going to bring back the Ark of God into the city of David. He's going to unite the two kingdoms under this big ceremonial act. Are, are you tracking? Like, do you hear how this actually relates to, to what we do in our culture and in our day? Okay, it's a good move. He's having, he's, we're having a parade. And the people, the whole nation can get behind it. This is good news. Okay, it's awesome. There's music and mayhem and celebration. And the oxen are mooing and the cart is driving. And suddenly horror. Let me, let me start to open this up now. That shiny new cart is a picture, a symbol of my way is better than God's way. To reach out and steady that falling ark actually seems like a pretty human thing to do. I'm just saying, if I had been there and and seen that happening, okay, on the shiny new cart, the ark of God, the ox are pulling it, they hit a bump, that thing's going to fall. I cannot tell you that I wouldn't have been like, whoa. Come on, are you with me? That shiny new way seems very human and very common sense, okay? It makes sense that that's how you would handle any article of value, but therein lies the problem, because this is not just an article 
of value. We have a profound desensitization to the sacredness of the ark of God. It's so interesting to me that in these scriptures, it's never just described as the ark. It's the ark of the Lord God of hosts who dwells among the chair, above the cherubim. Or it's the ark of the name. The name of the Lord. Like it's, the description is never short. Are, are you with me? And, and so this is not just some article of value. How did no one, including David, including the whole Levitical household where the ark has rested, guarded by the right rules for 20 years, get that God had given specific instructions for how that ark was meant to be handled. Why did no one get a clue? Only Levites, ever. And in fact, of the Levites, only the sect known as the Kohathites, ever. Okay? And, and even they were not allowed to touch it. Ever. Uzzah means my own strength or arrogance. To Selah for a second there. God's anger is kindled against Uzzah for the sin of his irreverence. This is not a God who is like, wow, you screwed up. Okay, don't think for one second. That is the spontaneous combustion response inside of a holy, awesome, terrible, loving king of the universe who sits enthroned above the cherubim because the tipping point, the critical mass of irreverence and familiarity has tipped the bowls. And a nuclear-like response has gone out from the core of his holiness to strike down the arrogance of man. And David is angry. Because he misses what's really happened. Because familiarity breeds contempt. The whole production, 20 years later, has been riddled with the same sins that Israel had been committing for decades. Presumption. Familiarity. Using God for my way, for my agenda. It looks good, it sounds good, and it is all wrong. That person of God cannot be separated from the righteousness of his holy presence and holy covenant. To reach out to steady the ark was to reach out to steady God himself. And the story goes on. And David is unwilling to try anything further. And the ark comes to rest in the house of a man named Obed-Edom, where it stays for three months. And folks, this is where it all turns around. Stay in the movie. Obed-Edom. That name Obed means a slave or servant. And Edom means red. It comes from the lineage of Esau. That's his, that's his historical line. He's descended from Esau. He's not from the 12 tribes. He's a Gittite. 
So he's not Israel at all. Esau, we know, we know Esau, Jacob and Esau. His heritage is what? Esau traded his birthright for his appetite. Come on. Obed-Edom basically means a slave or a worshiper of appetites. Okay, this is already looking not quite so good. And, and names meant something. Okay, in that culture, your name was your identity. It wasn't just a name. It's who you were. So the Ark of the Presence comes to rest in this man's house for three months. And Scripture tells us, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So the question we have to ask is this. I love this. I love this. How is it that the ark rested in the house of the Levitical priesthood for 20 years with a consecrated keeper assigned to protect reverence of the presence of God on earth and nothing but death came from it? But the ark rests for three months in the house of Obed-Edom. He's not only not a Levite, he's not even an Israelite, and he and his whole household are blessed. And we can only imagine that the difference is between familiarity and reverence. And I'm going to show you that that's exactly what has happened. All his life, Uzzah had been accustomed to the presence of the ark. It had been a familiar piece of furniture in Abinadab's house. And no doubt, familiarity had bred its usual effect. Scripture doesn't describe what it was like for Obed-Edom's family, but, but take a minute to go into that movie. Who knows what they did? But maybe, maybe Obed-Edom set it up in his, you know, one room of the little house and, and hung up a curtain. And maybe as he walked past it, I'm, I'm just guessing, maybe he walked past it with his sons and said, sons, turn your back. Turn your back when you go by, because this is the presence. This is the presence of the God of Israel. We don't know. We don't know. But Scripture says God blessed him. Think about that. God blessed him. Somehow, a revelation that failed to happen over 20 years happens in 90 days. And at the very end of those three months, David tries again. And this time, everything has changed. And they are very very careful to do it God's way. First Chronicles fifteen twelve through 15, I'm going to read it. Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst upon us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. Second Samuel six twelve through 15, David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. 
come back to the movie. When David returns the ark to Jerusalem, they sacrifice an ox and a fatling every six steps. Hebrew scholars know that the number six represents complete carnality. Complete carnality. They walk six steps and stop right there at the end of carnality, at the end of familiarity. No more presumption, no more pride. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of this procession. And blood gets spilled right there. And they take another six steps to the end of pride, the end of familiarity, the end of carnality, and blood is shed. And they take another six steps. It's 15 to 20 miles. Think about the smell and the sound of animals being slaughtered and the sound of worship and repentance and holiness. Acceptable worship with reverence and awe and his awesome holy presence is coming in on a river of blood. What does this remind you of? The God of our new covenant is the same God who made the old covenant with his people Israel. It is the river of the blood of Jesus that brings us into acceptable worship with reverence and awe. It is the river of the blood of Jesus that brings us into intimacy and right relationship with this holy, wonderful, awesome, powerful, terrible God who loves us with such ferocity and passion that he would shed the blood of his perfect son and our covenant comes in on a river of blood. Are you with me? It doesn't end there. Remember Obed-Edom. Scripture, if you read ahead in the Scripture, from that day forward, Obed-Edom picks up his whole house and he moves to the city of David and he never, ever leaves the presence of God again. And actually, much later on in Scripture, he meets with an unfortunate end and he's carried off when they go into exile, but just never mind that. Until then... He's addicted to the presence of God. His love is alive with intimacy and reverence. And two incredible things happen here. This is our God. Obed-Edom is only mentioned three more times in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and the book of Samuel. When we hear about him next, something impossible has happened. We can gather that because he's a Gittite, okay, at best he's a foreigner who's converted to the religion of David because there were converts among the Gittites. Suddenly, Obed-Edom is positioned around the tabernacle of David because he's mentioned first as a gatekeeper, okay? That's a porter. 
a kind of guard and servant to the presence of God. And that job was reserved for only the non-priest Levites. What has happened? It is impossible for him to have this job. And then the next time you hear his name, David has appointed Obed-Edom among the musicians. Whew, makes me cry. To minister before the ark day and night. He is positioned, forgive me, as close to the presence as any human can get. And it is totally captivated his heart. Those were the jobs reserved for Levites. Did God break the rules? And speaking of rule breaking, what about David's tabernacle? Because in Moses' tabernacle, the presence was shielded. Because anybody who gazed on it died. And this whole story, I hope, brings into 3D-like view the holiness and, and what the failure to revere holiness actually does. But David's tabernacle is open. It's, it's visible. It's accessible to all, and no one is dying. So what has happened? Did God break the rules? God did not, because he is his law, and he cannot be separated from it. But reverence positioned their hearts in such a way that the rules were satisfied. In the same way that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, the reverence of David, his passion to have a dwelling place, a resting place for God to dwell, Obed-Edom's passion for the presence of God positioned them in such a way that God was satisfied. Reverence is not a small thing. You cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and self. Reverence is the ultimate position of right alignment. It is the ultimate agreement with the totality of who God is. David's reverence, his heart after God, positioned him in such a way. Okay, let me, let me just, and this is my, I'm closing with this. We're wrapping now, okay? This is brilliant. There is so much talk. I, I don't know if you've heard it. I've heard lots of talk about the restoration of the tabernacle of David. This has become a buzzword sort of among, among worship people. That there, and, and not just worship people, but it's always connected to worship. There's this idea that we're going to do worship in such a way or we're going to do prayer in such a way that we're going to restore the tabernacle of David. We do 24-7 houses of prayer. We do, you know what I'm talking about, right? Am I the only one? This is sort of a it's common language. I don't believe that the tabernacle of David has anything to do with that. And let me tell you what I believe. Based on what I'm reading, I believe that the restoration of the tabernacle of David is, okay? Why, why in David's tabernacle, and it's still called a tabernacle, by the way. It wasn't just out in the city square, the ark, for everybody to see. The, the tabernacle and the divisions of the tabernacle, the way that the tabernacle, this is 
pre-temple was supposed to be organized, it was still organized that way. But the humans were around the ark making up the divisions and sections of the tabernacle, which is why the appointed Levitical priests and musicians were the ones that were positioned closest to the ark so no one could touch it and die. It's why the next row of people were the priests, the gatekeepers, who stood actually facing the people, leading them in worship, okay? Helping the people participate. All the the inner and the outer divisions of tabernacle were present. They just didn't have physical walls around it. Why? Because David, in his passion and because God picked him, actually is prophesying the access that was going to come when Jesus died and the veil was torn in two and we were forever given access by the blood of Jesus to the Holy One of Israel. Come on, are you with me? David's tabernacle is a prophecy that speaks to the kind of worshipers the Father seeks are those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, that they will be saved and under the blood covenant of his son Jesus Christ and carry the regenerate spirit the very presence of God on earth, David's tabernacle is a prophecy. It's not a model to be emulated. It's a prophetic word. Come on. Come on. David's heart after God positioned him in such a way that God endorsed that prophetic tabernacle and pointed the way to the new covenant in Jesus Christ that we get to live under. Come on. Obed-Edom's reverence, his passionate addiction to the presence, caused God to position him like a Levite because by definition, he already was one. He gave up everything to be near the presence. Consider this as we close Psalm 5, verse 7. But as for me, By your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. Because of your abundant loving kindness, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, that whosoever would believe upon him would receive eternal life. By your loving kindness, I can now enter your house. Reverence must be part of our worship again. I don't know how you close the service, but I'm, I'm going to do this, Okay. I think it's a good idea to simply make opportunity to do business with the Lord. And however you dismiss your service, you're coming up, okay. But it's not a terrible idea to spend some time coming back to the altar and doing business with this God who became accessible through the ultimate sacrifice. Because 
We need to get our hearts repositioned again and again and again and again because he's holy and he's intimate and he's wonderful. So let's pray together. In fact, let's stand and pray together because it's good to stand. Father, I thank you for everything that you've done in this house this weekend and today. And Lord, I'm asking that every word that has come from your mouth would be like that seed that goes into good, deep, fertile soil and bears good fruit unto eternal life. And that every word that is not from your mouth would pass harmlessly, would blow away like dust, and wouldn't be remembered. And Father, we're asking that you would come by the wonderful presence of your Holy Spirit and that you would begin to massage in the presence of who you are to every hardened place in our heart, every place we've become familiar with you. And that we would exchange our familiarity for intimacy that we would exchange our irreverence for reverence and awe, and that we would again come to know you as wisdom, that we would again move in the fear of the Lord, because that's what you're asking. Those are the worshipers you're looking for. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just had a couple of things we want to do before we close. Ushers, why don't you come? Why don't you go ahead and sit down just for a second? We want to take a love offering for Catherine as she, as she goes from us. How many of you think that the message of, that she spoke today and the message of, of the intimacy of worship is something that the church needs? Amen? And so we just want to bless her. She travels. She does all these different things and conferences and stuff. And so uh, this offering now has nothing to do with uh, Epicenter Church. It's going to go completely to, to Catherine. And, uh, if, again, if you want to give through the kiosk, you can do that, or you can give through your app on your phone, uh, Secure Give. Uh, but every, every, everything we do right now is going to go directly to her and her ability to take this message to other people. Amen? And uh, so, Father, we thank you for that, and we ask, Lord, that we, in, the, in the generosity again that we spoke of earlier, God, we ask that you would quicken our hearts again. Thank you, God, that it is not a, a man thing, it's a Holy Spirit thing. And so give us the number that you would put on our hearts to give and bless Catherine and her, and her ministry, Father. So we just thank you for that, and we bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. And just as the ushers are, 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 are giving you opportunity to give today, uh, I was thinking as she was speaking, uh, that was a really good message. It was a really good thing. But how many of you find sometimes when you listen to things, it's a, it's a lot to take in at one time? Have you had this experience? Like when I listen to podcasts and different speakers in the past, man, I, I have to actually go back, either stop it 